Peter would write these through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit when he says, after speaking about last Sunday where it was resisting the devil in our lives, he says, but may the God of all grace, somebody say God of all grace, but may the God of all grace who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you've suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. To him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, our, bro- our faithful brother, as I consider him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God in which you stand. She who is in Babylon, elect together with you, greets you, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to you all who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. Father, speak through your word this morning. Let's all be seated. Today I'm going to be tackling the conclusion, of course, of this letter. For the final time, you'll hear me say that Peter wrote this letter to encourage Christians whose faith was under pressure. Their faith was being challenged tremendously. And he was writing to them to encourage them, to encourage them to hold on to what they believe. But it's more than just holding on, and I want to be able to show you that this morning. He's encouraging them in the midst of tremendous pressure in their lives that they have got to work their faith even when the suffering is great. Sometimes you just got to work it. We just think, you know, I'm just holding on to my faith. No, I want to encourage you, and you're going to see that through the rest of this message. It's never about just holding on. It's about working your faith in those times of challenges. And so... I was looking, I've talked a lot about persecution in the days of Peter and what they went through. And, you know, I don't want us to, for one second, think that, you know, they're special back then because of their persecution. That's sarcasm. Because we still have persecution in our world today. And I used to talk about this a lot more frequently in days past, but uh, I was happening to be looking some stuff up and open doors as an organization that I used to get their material and, and read all the time. And I just wanted to see what it was for 2021, if anything's changed in like the last 10 years. And, and it has. And I want to read to you some of the statistics of persecuted Christians around the world. They wrote this. Uh, this was for... This is 2021, and the statistics are for 2020. Every day, 13 Christians worldwide are killed because of their faith. 13 Christians every single day because of their faith. Every day, 12 churches are attacked. Every day, 12 Christians are unjustly arrested or imprisoned. Another five are abducted. 309 million Christians live in places considered extreme 
levels of persecution. Now, there's, there's a lot more to this that I could expand upon. That's, they have levels of persecution. The highest level, 309 million Christians, that's not even counting you know, certain countries like you know, some of the Arab countries and Cuba and places like that where Christians do suffer for their faith also. It's just that these are the most extreme places. Now, I've not yet heard of Christians in modern-day Christianity being turned into human candles like they were in the days of Rome and lit on fire. However, we see all around the world that there are some that are beheaded, they're killed, they are arrested, they're imprisoned, women are raped, homes are burned down, people get fired from work, they're beaten, and they're ridiculed, all for saying that they believe in Jesus. This was not 2,000 years ago, this is today. In our world today, this is what people are going through. There is a tremendous amount of suffering that takes place in the church, and we're, we're blessed to live where we are. I don't know how blessed sometimes, because I don't know that we really understand what true hurt, pain, sorrow, and suffering is. Nevertheless, I don't want to minimize that. It's difficult for us to sometimes comprehend, though, I think, the suffering that other Christians endure. However, when it comes to suffering, suffering of any kind can be both painful physically and emotionally. And when it comes to suffering and pain in our lives, a lot of times the suffering that leads to pain then leads to questions in our life, doesn't it? Because we might start asking the questions when we feel like suffering, our own great suffering that we go through, it is causing us to say, you know, why me? You know, and I don't know about you, but I always will immediately think, what have I done wrong? That's usually my first stance when things aren't going right in my life is I point the finger at myself. Like, where did I go wrong? Uh, what sins do I have going on in my life right now? Uh, there's always some sort of sin, like do I need to work on one more than others? Is there something repetitive taking place here? Do, do I need to like fast? Am I not being spiritual enough? You, you, there's always these questions of myself. Why me? Did I do something wrong? Am I not good enough? And then when I start looking at my own life, like then you start to question really why is this happening? Why did it have to happen? You, you might even ask why now is this happening? And then some people go to the extent of asking why doesn't God just put a stop to this? Why doesn't he stop the suffering in my life or stop the suffering in general? And suffering leads to pain and pain leads to questions and questions ultimately will lead to doubt. And in the midst of your doubt, you begin to doubt yourself, you doubt your faith, and eventually you will begin to doubt God. And here's the crazy thing that in the midst of, of all this, this cycle that we go through sometimes in life is that in the midst of our doubt, some radical Christian that's overzealous in their faith like Peter can step in to encourage you. And his encouragement will be things like this. I'm going to read you his encouragement to the church who is suffering beyond what we could ever possibly imagine in our church today. His encouragement says things like this in chapter 1, if you remember. Rejoice with joy inexpressible. Gird up the loins of your mind. As he who has called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct. Love one another with fervent 
fervently with a pure heart. In chapter 2, he wrote, lay aside all of your malice, your deceit, your hypocrisy, your envy, and all evil speaking. When it comes to you and your suffering, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. Let your conduct be honorable amongst the Gentiles that, that you might think oppose you. And then, of course, when you're suffering, make sure that you submit. Submit to government, submit to man's law, submit to masters or employers. And then in chapter 3, it's more submission. Wives, in the midst of this, submit to your husbands. Husbands, honor your wives. All of you in the church, be of one mind, have compassion, be tenderhearted, be courteous, don't return evil for evil. I know you're suffering, so since Christ suffered, arm yourselves with the same mind that he had. Be hospitable to one another without grumbling in the midst of your suffering. As each one of you has received a gift from God, rather than lay it aside, quit, and walk away, instead use that gift to minister to one another in the midst of your tremendous suffering. Chapter 5, submit again. This time, submit to your elders, your leaders in the church. Be submissive to one another. Be clothed with humility. Be sober, be vigilant, and resist the devil. Can you possibly even imagine? I'm like, wow. Do you not know what we're going through right now in our trials and tribulations in life? And this is your kind of encouragement? Listen, Peter. Right? And he's like, no, 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 no. There is no, I'm sorry you're suffering. I'm sorry that you're hurting right now. Why don't you just take a little vacation away? Maybe you can go to Ephesus. I hear Paul's preaching over there. He's a pretty good preacher. He's intelligent. You know, he's smart. He's got a lot to say. He writes a lot of things. You know, maybe you can soak in a good Christian conference while you're there. Maybe on the way from Turkey to, to there, you could stop over in the Holy, Sand, Holy Land and, and catch a few sights. Go see the empty tomb of Jesus. You know, get a little you time. Hopefully, you know, when you get back home, maybe your neighbors will have forgotten all about your instances of being a Christian and acting like a Christian. Maybe the warrants for your arrest will have been quashed. And, you know, because really nobody wants to see you suffer. Nobody wants to see you hurt. Guess what? None of those were words that came out of the great apostle Peter's mouth when it came to their tremendous suffering. Instead, for five chapters, what we have read is how to suffer even more. I mean, I already get beat at work, and now you want me to act happy about it? To be holy, set apart, humble, submit, love a fellow Christian that doesn't meet my expectations in life, don't say anything bad about it, minister to them, and fight the devil. Hello! Like, I've heard about the irrational side of Peter, but you call this encouragement? You call this encouragement? And he's like, yeah. Yeah, I do. Because it's about working your faith. Not just holding on when you're under pressure in the midst of suffering in your life. And that's why I want to end with telling you about the God of all grace. You see, he says all of that suffering, all of that pain, it's only for a little while. It's short-lived. He says something similar in chapter 1, verse 6, when he says, you know, I know that you guys have been grieving over going through various trials in life for a little 
while. So in a sense, you'd almost think there's hope in the fact that it's only a little while. However, when you read what Peter is saying in context, you'll find that he says, you know, your suffering will only last a little while until the revelation of Jesus Christ comes. <laughs> what does that mean? Are you kidding me? That at the revealing of Jesus, my suffering will only last a little while until the revealing of Jesus. So as long as I'm suffering in life, if Jesus returns in my lifetime, then you know the suffering will stop. But no, duh. I thought we already knew that. And then, you know, if, if he doesn't return in my lifetime, I may suffer until I die. And then at the returning of Jesus, I may still have to have gone through that until his death and I'm resurrected to be with him. So like, wow, again, what you're telling me is it's quite possible that when it comes to suffering, I could practically have to suffer my whole life if that's the case. Like that doesn't sound short. That sounds long, right? I just had someone come see me when I was at the church yesterday, and they were knocking on the door outside. I go out there, and the summary of what they told me is that they've suffered their entire life. Their entire life. Like, it's been a long, suffering life. And so I came back in, and I was thinking about that. How does that coincide with what Peter is saying right here? And then I thought about all of the funerals I've preached over the years, and people, you know, they're all like, you know, it's, you know, I've suffered so many years. It's been so long. Why isn't God giving me reprieve? And then somebody they die, somebody they know and love dies, and they come to church, and they hear Pastor Corey quote James 4.14, life is but a mist. It's a vapor. It's here today and gone tomorrow. Life is short. Make the most about what you have. That same person will amen you what so is life long or is it short or is it long suffering and 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 when you look at what peter writes here he's contrasting our life with the eternal glory that the God of all grace has called us into. And so, you know, you think about, like, what's your life in comparison to eternity? And really, it is short. And so what's he trying to get across to us is, number one, this isn't a number of my sermon, by the way. It's just me talking. Peter's encouragement is that suffering is short-lived because life is short. And even if we suffer in life right now, man, we have an eternity to look forward to. An eternity. I know it's hard, but in the midst of that short-lived suffering that might contain your life, you've got to learn to work your faith. Now, in a sense, you might think that Peter is minimizing suffering. Like, it's short. Just give God thanks that it's short, right? However, minimizing is not necessarily dismissing. Minimizing is not dismissing it. He still wrote a letter to encourage them in the midst of their suffering. He still cares. However, what he does is he minimizes suffering so he can maximize the God of all grace. So who is this God of all grace? I think about when God first introduced himself to his chosen people, which was the first church of people. He brings them out of a life of suffering in Egypt. He crosses over through several miracles 
into the desert with them. He asks them to make covenant with him for their lives as he promises them a great life in the promised land. Moses goes up on the hill. He comes down with that covenant promise, what we know of as the Ten Commandments. And what does he find? But in a short time, they've already made a golden calf and they've started to worship the golden calf. Like how quickly they turn their backs on God when they go through just a little bit of suffering once they know God. Like before, you don't even know that they really even knew God. 400 years in Egypt, how much of their faith had slipped away until Moses arrives upon the scene being called by by God the Father to lead his people out of Egypt, out of slavery, out of horrible conditions. They experience the greatness of God. They get to know a little bit of God, and now they must think that their life should be perfect. And just because Moses has gone for a few days on a mountain, they've already turned away because of the suffering that they're enduring to worship something else. Moses comes down, and Moses, instead of instructing them, hey, like, listen, this is the covenant that we're supposed to live by, he gets mad, blows up, and he smashes them. Like, I just think, like, God's looking down, like, what is going on down here, right? Like, he's, you know, he's just destroyed the covenant, what I was, what I was asking of my people. Now, don't misunderstand me. God wasn't happy about the situation either, okay? But, but what happens after that? This is kind of an introduction to a greater level of who God is in these people's lives. He calls Moses back up to the mountain. And Moses, after blowing up in anger and smashing the tablets, says, God, I, I want to get to know you more. I want to know you more. Kind of like the song we were singing before I started preaching. I want to know you more. I, I, I just blew it. I want to know you more. And so what does God do? He invites him in to know him more. And, and then what he does is he calls out his name. And at the very beginning of calling out his name, he says, I am Lord God, merciful and gracious. Gracious. They didn't deserve another set of Ten Commandments. Gracious. Unmerited favor something we cannot earn, something we do not deserve. John chapter 1, verse 14 and 16, he's writing about the word becomes flesh and dwells among, dwells among us, speaking of Jesus. The apostle John says, We beheld the glory and the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Grace, grace. Grace. Verse 16, he says, and of his fullness, we have all received. Of his fullness, we have all received. And grace for grace. Not just grace once, but grace for grace. 
Romans 5, 17 and 20, Paul would write to the church, for if by one man's offense death reigned through the one, speaking of Adam's sin, much more those who receive, how much more those who receive abundance of grace. Somebody say abundance. And the gift of righteousness will reign in the life through the one, Jesus Christ. Verse 20 says, moreover, the law entered into the offense that the offense might abound. The law entered that we might recognize sin, and and sin would abound so we could recognize it. But where sin abounded, guess what? Grace had the ability to expand. Grace had the ability to, to, to grow. The grace abounded that much more. Where there was grace, when sin abounded, then grace began to abound much more. Ephesians 1, 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to what? The riches of his grace. When I think about the grace of God and who he is, God's grace is like a fountain that just keeps on flowing over and over. It's full. It's grace for grace. There's an abundance of grace. There's much more. There's undeserved and unearned because it is the riches of God's grace. And I'm sure that a lot of you have heard grace is the acronym that it's God's riches at Christ's expense. It is the grace of God that he sent his one and only son. It is the grace of God. He gave us favor that we did not deserve by sending his one and only son that we might have life. Jesus would say in life, abundantly. It was the grace of God to send his one and only son to die on a cross for you and I. Grace through Jesus Christ. And it is through working our belief in Jesus, working our faith in Jesus, that we have access to even more grace. I want to show you something here real quick. One day Jesus is speaking to a crowd of people that uh, he had miraculously fed the day before. You guys remember the feeding of the 5,000 that's taken place and, you know, miraculously they all get fed and then they jump in the boat and, you know, he scolds the disciples on the way across the lake and then when they get to the other side, you know, all of the people are like, you know, come flocking to him again and they start asking him questions and he says some pretty challenging words to them. But in the midst of that, it says that they asked him this question, John, 20, John 6, 20. He says, they said, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? What, did, what are they asking? They see Jesus, you know, doing these great works. And he's doing the works of God. And like, they want to know, what do we do to do the works of God? And Jesus answers and he says to them, here's your answer. Listen to this. This is the work of God. This is the work of God. This, that you believe in him whom he sent. What do you need to do to do the work of God? Believe in Jesus. Not just a one-time belief, though. You got to work that belief. Now, it started with grace to give you the faith, but then you got to work it. Ephesians 2.8, for by grace you've been saved through faith, not of yourselves, right? It's, 
It's the gift of God. Grace and faith are connected. So the God of all grace deposited a seed of faith inside of you. The God of all grace, it was grace that deposited the seed of faith inside of you that got you saved. But if you will do the work of God, if you will work that seed of faith that was deposited inside of you, if you will work on the believing aspect, you will learn that there's more than just grace for salvation in life. Here's... Here's the reality of life. When life gets tough and we're facing pressure and we're going through sufferings and there's pressure on our faith and, and what are we going to do and how do we act and all sorts of things like that, you know what, we will have a tendency to do just the opposite of the work of God. We pull away. And instead, what Peter is trying to encourage them to do is understand, man, it was grace that got you the seed to even believe, but if you will catch this, if you will work that belief... How much more grace, you'll have an abundance of grace, grace upon grace, the riches of God's grace that is available to you to be able to accomplish even more. And so Peter even describes some of the aspects of God's vast grace throughout his letter. 1 Peter 1.10, he says, of this salvation, the salvation that you guys currently walk in, the prophets have inquired and searched carefully who prophesied of the grace that would come to you. It was because of the grace that you're even walking in the salvation that you have right now. Don't forget the grace. The grace that gave you the faith to get there. The God of all grace. 1 Peter 1.13 Therefore, when he says, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober and rest your hope. Fully upon the grace. I know you're suffering right now. But what you've got to do is work your faith, Right? That is, girding up the loins of your mind, that takes some work. Being sober, sometimes that takes some work. Resting your hope, sometimes that may take some work. You've got to stir up your faith so that you can have that grace upon you. Right? Rest your hope fully upon the grace. The grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Like it, it, Grace started us and grace is going to bring us to the end. 1 Peter 3, 7, husbands, likewise, dwell with your wives with understanding, giving honor to the wife as the weaker vessel, as being heirs together of the grace of life. Have a great understanding as you're going through the challenges of life with your spouse, that in that, that it is the grace of life that you guys are operating in. 1 Peter 4, 10, as each one of us has received a gift. Again, you're going through suffering. So what are you going to do? You're going to pull away. You're going to stop. You're not going to want to use that gift. You're not going to want to serve one another. You're not going to want to do any of that sort of stuff. But instead, what he's trying to tell us is you've got to work your faith. I've given you a gift, not just so it can sit idly, not so you can pull it back, but instead use that gift. Minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Instead, I want you with the grace that I've given you to now use your gift to show grace. It's about you giving others grace. What we should see here is that there is some depth to the grace of God, the grace of salvation, the, to the grace of life, to the grace that we're supposed to have for one another and the grace that you know we will have at the revealing of Jesus. Peter describes in here that, you know, there's a grace for all aspects of life. We think when we're going through pain and suffering, what we need is relief. 
right? But in the pain, in the suffering, according to Peter, we don't need relief. We need God's grace. Because what the devil meant for destruction, God means for construction. What the devil does to devour, God will do to empower. You remember what, first Peter, what Peter said in 1 Peter 1, 6-9? He says, in this greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you may have been grieved by various trials that are going on in your life. Getting stuck on a stick and putting wax and lit on fire. Yeah, you'd probably grieve a little bit at various trials, right? But he says, rejoice that the genuineness of your faith, that your faith would be made genuine, real, being much more precious than gold. Your faith is more precious than gold. Understand the value of your faith. Though it is tested by fire, may be found that in the fire you praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen you, love. Though now you do not see him yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. You know, in, in life, your faith is being worked to be purified, to be made genuine, to cause you to grow in relationship with Jesus. That's what this is really all about. The working of your faith is to grow you to know him more. And guess what? You need grace for that. You need grace for that. In the suffering, in the, in the pain, in the questions, and the doubt, you need grace for that. In the greater expectations of being in the midst of suffering and yet still being called to be holy, to have the mind of Christ and all that other righteous stuff that Peter threw out in this letter, you need grace for that. And grace is both the pardon so we can survive and the power so we can stand. He writes in his conclusion that God in his grace is going to perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. Where are you going to get the strength to endure what you're going through? In God's grace. How are you ever going to make it through being perfected, established, to be settled, rooted in him through his grace? He says, I've written to you briefly exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God in which you stand. The grace of God to pardon you and to yet empower you. This is the true grace of God in which you stand. Peter's encouragement is for us to understand the value of the process. It's God's grace to save us, to sustain us, to purify us, and to ultimately glorify his children. And the process is grace. The process is grace. So what are we to do in the process? Don't run from it. Don't shift away from it. Don't hide from it. But he says, stand firm in it.
When I'm hurting and I am questioning, stand in it. When I am weak and I am doubting, stand in it. When it's too grueling to keep moving forward, you've got to stand in it. When it is hard to resist the devil, stand in it. When humility becomes humiliating, stand in it. When it's a challenge to be kind to somebody, stand in it. When it sucks to submit, you've got to stand in it. When I can't put my heart out there one more time to love anybody else, stand in it. The God of all grace is overflowing. There is no shortage to his favor. Sometimes you've just got to stop and stand in it. And yet there's somebody here that would probably say this morning to me, you know what, you don't even know my situation. Like, I need a miracle, a legit miracle. Stand in it. Stand in it. You know, Acts 4.33 It's written about the expansion of the early church and how it grew and everything that was taking place. And and the author would write these words, With great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Not just grace, but great grace was upon them all. I want you to understand As I close this out, great power and great grace go hand in hand. Think of all the times that Jesus performed a miracle on somebody else's behalf. Think about this with me for a moment. He went and he touched a leper, a leper that they're so bad because it might be contagious that nobody else would touch, that even the law would say not to touch them, that they had to live on their own, and yet Jesus would look at them with great grace and touch them. Think about the freedom that was brought to the lunatic. The lunatic who chased everybody off. The lunatic who cussed people out. The lunatic who would scare your children if you got near them. The lunatic that freaked the world out. And yet Jesus would come to the lunatic and he would set him free. Think about the Roman centurion's servant. Jesus didn't even go lay hands on him, but that he would just speak the word. And he would say of the Roman centurion that there'd be no one in the land that would have greater faith than this Roman. And you know what? Most of those Jews would have said this stinking Roman because the Romans were the perpetrators. The Romans were the enemies. The Romans were the haters of their nation. And yet Jesus would take a Roman centurion, a soldier that was to be put against him as a Jew, and he would look at him and just speak the word and claim how much faith he had to see that servant healed. Talk about undeserved unearned and yet grace for all aspects for all varieties for all people for all ways great grace great grace and great power go hand in hand Stand in great grace. 1 Peter 5, just skimming through this. The God of all grace, 
who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus. Who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus. If you're a Christian, if you've surrendered your heart to Jesus, if you've said, Lord, I want you to be the master of my life, then he has called you to eternal glory. He's called you to eternal glory. It says after, after you've suffered a while, he'll perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. Now, we just get stuck on what he's going to do with us. What we really need to be stuck on, on, stuck on is who's going to do it. He will perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. He will do it. You just got to stand in it. Peter is giving you assurance at the very end. Listen, the one who called you to his glory will get you to his glory. To him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen, he says. Dominion is the superior strength. God has dominion over all things created, including the devil himself. All of our suffering, all of our pain, all of our questions, all of our doubts, all of the right ways that we're to live in life, God has dominion. And therefore, when he promises, when he promises to successfully get us through the jungle of this world and bring us to his glory, he can do it, and he will do it. Because dominion belongs to the Lord. He is the God of all grace.